0: Old Testament reading this morning is from Jeremiah chapter 17. I'm going to ask you to please turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah 17 and then over to Romans chapter 6. Isaiah 17 verses 5 through 10. The prophet says this, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water. That sends out its roots by the stream, and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green, and he is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart, and I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And with that in mind, let's turn to Romans chapter 6 as we continue on in our series and our messages in this great epistle. Chapter 6 just two verses this morning. We're just picking up where we left off last week. Paul says this, you know what? Let me go back to um 5:20 again, just like last week. Paul said, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? And may God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you prepare our hearts to receive your word. You do that by your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would pour your spirit out into our hearts, illuminate our hearts and minds. Lord, help us to truly be engaged with your word. Just grip us tightly, Lord God. I pray that our minds aren't wandering, that we're not just waiting for... Uh, the end of the service and what we're doing later on. But we are fixing our eyes upon Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. And I pray, Lord, that you would be with me, your servant, as I bring forth your word, Lord God, as I look to you, as all of us together look to Christ Jesus, who is our teacher. I just pray that you would be pleased to use me to bring forth your word in a very clear way by the power of the Spirit, where those who need to be convicted or convinced would be, would, would be, Lord God, by your spirit, where we need to be encouraged and built up and strengthened that too by your spirit. So help us to learn together to grow deeper in our love for you, our love for one another, and our love for the lost, Lord God, that we may go from this place challenged, strengthened, encouraged, Lord, to seek after you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Look, it's so important. Yeah, amen and praise God. Look, it is so important to understand our position in Jesus Christ, like who we are in his eyes and positionally, the reality of that. Because in this life, sometimes we we go between, yes, I'm on fire for the Lord, and I know I belong to him, and he's mine, to, oh, man, am I even a Christian? Am I even walking with the Lord at this time? So you, he does a wonderful job, Paul does of letting us know that positionally in Christ we stand forgiven. We stand justified before him. That's not going to change. We're already raised up with Jesus Christ. That's the already and the not yet as Christians. So don't lose heart, but continue to live for him. That's the encouragement here. It's a big deal to understand the reality of who we are in Jesus Christ, even when our world doesn't seem to speak to that or in our lives, we kind of struggle with that. No, 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 no. We're in Jesus Christ. That will not change. So we're talking about a little bit the objections to grace that Paul might be thinking of. And last week, if you remember that we talked about two responses Both, both very wrong. I mean, totally, totally wrong. They totally missed the point of salvation by grace alone, being justified by grace. Do you remember what they were? Yes. On the one hand, it was the legalism. Those people that are so afraid of the grace of God that we can't do that and you must do this, lest God be angry with us. So let's keep the rules. Let's keep A, B, and C. I'm a good little boy and I'm a good little girl and God's going to just be okay with me. We don't want to, We listen, go back and listen to that if you missed it. We talked extensively about legalism nor is the grace of God or salvation by grace some kind of divine license to sin. And that's what Paul's really dealing with in these passages here. It's not like, okay, I'm a Christian. Now I can kind of sin all I want and you know, still have remission of sin and be forgiven in the Lord. He doesn't really make a big deal out of sin because I'm forgiven in Christ. No, 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 no. We're going to see that in the next couple of weeks. Both of those ideas, both of those philosophies, That Those ways of thinking are outside the scope, and I want you to hear this. They're outside the scope of genuine, authentic, true Christianity, and even conversion. Conversion to Jesus Christ is not about legalism, and it's not about license. It's about the grace of God in Jesus Christ in which we live in, and that's what we're going to be getting to today. So be be aware of that. If you tend towards legalism, check yourself. Check your heart. Because there are a lot of Christians who were raised in that. You're truly converted, but you're stuck in legalism. But there are also those who believe that legalism is a means. That's what Christianity is, and that's how we're saved. If that's the deal, then you need to examine your basic relationship to Jesus Christ. The same with this idea, though, if I'm a Christian, if I just confess Jesus, I could live the way I want. You need to check yourself, and you need to check your heart, because that is not what grace is all about. So that's not what justification by grace alone is. Through faith alone in Christ Jesus alone, that's not what it looks like, right? So, in this section, really verses one through fourteen, Paul is going to deal with this idea of antinomianism. This this kind of grace, he's going to just point out how absurd it is if you're a Christian, if you're truly a Christian, as he compares it to our baptism, to crucifixion, to resurrection, and then verses fifteen through twenty-three, from uh, he compares it with enslavement to, to to freedom and being free in Christ. But verses 1 and 2 really set the foundation. That's what I want to focus in on today as before we uh, delve into the rest of this section. So look at verse 1, chapter 6. He raises the question, look, we're saved by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So the natural objection, or people might be thinking, is Paul's a great teacher, anticipating object, objections and answering those, he says, so what shall we say then, since we're saved by this grace, since nothing can separate us from Christ's love? No sin that you commit will cut you off from the Lord Jesus Christ, if you're truly in him. He's saying, is that okay to go on sinning? No. No, he raises the question, if grace abounds, you know, people will be asking, Then I need not take sin too seriously. I can kind of have the best of both worlds. No, you can't. That's not, that's not at all what he's teaching. He's saying wrong, dead wrong. In verse two, he's very emphatic. He says, are we to continue in sin? Verse 2 says, by no means. That's the ESV translation. Literally, in the Greek, the construction is, never may it happen. You think you can live that way? No way. Because grace abounds, because you can't lose your salvation, that you can go on sinning and believe you're, you're able to do that? No, don't even begin to think like that. It's emphatic the way he says that. Never be, by no means. Absolutely not. I would say it or we might say, it, are you kidding me or what? You think as a Christian now you can go on and sin and continue in that way if you're a true Christian? That, you're missing the whole point of salvation and the whole point of grace if you think that. God forbid. Man, that's what he's saying when he says, by no means. We're not going to do that. That's not who we are. That's not characteristic of authentic salvation. And you need to know this, people. There's great force the way the sentences are constructed in the greek it's really really powerful very emphatic the way he's saying these things with great force it's saying we paul saying we being who we are and what we are in jesus christ it's unthinkable man it's unthinkable that we would want to continue to sin let alone to sin in such a willful and selfish way. That's that's what he's saying here when he says, may it never be. How can we die to sin to t- t- continue to live that way? Right? It's impossible because, he says in verse 2, by no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? That's why. Because in Jesus Christ, we have died to sin. Do you understand that? Do you you must understand again with the literary construction of that passage the the structure of that passage the words that are used the way that they're used it is this is like a theological fact right so when he says died to sin that word died is in the aorist tense i know that might not mean much to to many of you unless you know your grammar in that way he died to sin in that aorist tense that means that means that, 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 that it's something that happened in the past very definitively, one time. It's objectively true. Boom, period of time. This happened. The mood is indicative. It's indicative mood. And that, all that does is describe the situation that it actually is, the thing that's actually true. It's not hoped for. Oh, I'm hoping that you'll die to sin. It's not a wished for. It's a reality, it's an objective fact, it's truth, Paul says, if you're in Jesus Christ, then you, Mr you, ma'am, Missus, are dead to sin. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that that's your position in christ Jesus. that's the objective truth. It's something that has happened to you when you believe in Jesus Christ. Amen, praise God that's that He's not speaking here about sanctification per se. I know some of you are thinking, "Well, what about sanctification, pastor? Isn't that progressive? Aren't we being sanctified? Yes, we're not speaking about sanctification specifically, but we're talking about our standing in Christ positionally, how he views you, how you truly are in him. Your actual, the the truth about you, the fact about you in Christ. So what Paul is saying here, when he says, We have died to sin. We have died to sin. He's not saying you ought to die to sin. You know, Christian, you ought to die. He's not saying that we ought to die to sin. Or he's not saying that we are dying to sin. He's not saying that. He's saying you have died to sin. So the question of continuing in sin where, where grace abounds, sin, where sin abounds, grace abounds on the more. The question of continuing in sin is absurd. It's as absurd as, as having a dead person being alive. It, like, it doesn't make sense. If you're dead, you're not alive. You're not gonna live. I saw this, just a little side note, but I saw this show one time, uh, about this man. It's like the strange things that people do in the world, whatever. And this dude had his wife who died, but he has her in a room her, her corpse in her room and embalms and her and, and kind of keeps her going. And every day he goes in there and he has tea and he reads and he, and he acts like, she's dead. She's dead. She has nothing to do with life. That's how we are when it comes to, to sin in that way. We're dead to it. Why would we continue in it in that way? I know what you're thinking, Pastor. What are you, what are you saying here? You saying we could be perfect, and you know, are you talking about perfectionism that we could live a life like Todd White? You know, I have never really sinned or willfully, or you know, some 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 of the radical Methodist movements, the sinless perfection. No, 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 no. That's not what Paul's saying here at all. That is not at all what I mean. It's not about sinless perfection. It's not that. It's not that we as Christians can live a perfectly sinless life. Paul talks about that, especially when we get into Romans 7, 1 John. We're told, you know, if we say we're without sin, we are? Yeah, we're nuts. We're liars. That's The truth is not in you in that way, right? So Paul's not talking about that. Here, He's not talking about something that we do. Again, it's not really about our sanctification as we're being sanctified by the Spirit, but something that is true of us as we believe. As you believe in Jesus Christ, as you're converted, as regeneration takes place, you're a new creation in Jesus Christ. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. What Paul is teaching here, what Paul is teaching here is not a sinless perfection. He's not talking about sanctification per se, but what he's saying here, and here's how we're free from that sin, how we die to sin. He's saying that sin no longer reigns in your life. You know that? you understand that if you're a Christian? Sin no longer dominates your life. Sin no longer is that ruler of your life. It's no longer your master anymore. Before Christ, absolutely. We're under the power of sin. It's our nature. It just comes so natural to us. If you're a Christian, it's not natural. It's part of our sinful fallen nature, but it's not who we are in Christ. In other words, sin has lost its death grip on on us. Right? We say amen to that. The the, the chains have been removed. The chains have been, we're free to live for Christ. It's like being in a cell, in a prison cell, but it's unlocked. The door is unlocked. You just need to walk. We're free in Christ. You're no longer under that bondage of sin where I must sin. I could say no to sin by the power of God in me. Look at verses 6 and 7. We'll talk more about this next week. But 6, he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You're no longer a slave of sin. You no longer has that power over you. And then verse 7, for the one who has died to sin has been set free from sin. Do you understand? Again, don't confuse us with perfectionism. He's not talking about that, as we'll see. But he's saying we're no longer under the power of sin; we've been transferred. Look at Colossians. This is this is true of you if you're a Christian. You should be rejoicing in this. You should be saying "Amen" and praise God that I am free in that way. Colossians one thirteen and fourteen. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That's before Christ. Is the domain of darkness the wrath of God abides on you? John three thirty six. And now we've been transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. You have been transferred. You're no longer who you were and what you were. You're new creation in Christ Jesus. You have been transferred. Paul, when he's given his testimony before the king and, and saying this is what's true, he goes on to say he was sent and commissioned by Christ to do what? To open their eyes so they may turn from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Do you understand this? Get this down and get this straight in your mind, even before we move on to look at the specific illustrations and examples. Every person, every single solitary person is either under the reign of sin, you're under that reign, you are, you just are, or you're under the reign of grace. There's no third way Right? This isn't thesis, antithesis, synthesis. It's not that, you know, it's not like one way, this way, but here's my... No. And you you can't have it both ways either. This is it. You're either under the reign of sin or you're under the reign of grace. Which one are you? And I want to tell you, man, and I want to show you, even though this, for some of you, might be a little philosophical at this point or kind of hard to get, I'm just going to give you illustrations to show you how simple this really is and what it actually means, even experientially in that way. So check this out. If you're under the reign of sin, what are the characteristics of that? What does it look like and how do you know that you're under the reign of sin? Well, first of all, and I'm not going to spend any time on this because we've been talking about this since we've started this uh letter it's our natural bent it's our natural inclination we are born in sin we're conceived in sin all of sin and fall short of the glory of god that has been clearly seen in our message so born into this world that is just naturally we're just under the reign of sin from time of conception right and we just that just plays out in our lives there's enough sermons i've done on that in this series you can go back and refer to those but there's three ways generally that i want to point this out very practical ways ways that you could see That reign of sin, that nature of sin, and you're not necessarily even cognizant of it per se. In your heart of hearts, you know it, but as a Christian, you see it, and that's not who you are anymore. That's what Paul's talking about here. It doesn't have reign. It's not your master anymore. You say no to sin, and yes to Christ and obedience. That's living a life of grace in him. So three ways that you know you're under the reign of sin, real simple, self-perception. How people view themselves. Generally, if you're under the reign of sin, people, you probably considered yourself what? Before you were a Christian, what did you think about yourself for the most part? Good person when people talk to you. I'm, I'm a decent person. I'm, I'm okay. I'm generally, I'm pretty decent and, and, and pretty good. And so people go on to give you a list of virtues Here's what I've done, here's what I haven't done, and here are my accomplishments, and here are my character qualities. And again, nobody will preface and say, I'm not perfect. Oh, nobody's perfect, but you know, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not down there. And and I and I think and I think I'm pretty good. I'm not perfect, but certainly I'm not a sinner. I'm not a sinner. Go ahead. Call somebody who's not converted. Say, hey, you're a sinner to them. Watch the reaction that you get. It's going to be really like, what? Are you a sinner me? Are you kidding? No way. I remember I preached a sermon talking about it was on sin. And a cousin of mine was there observing. And he was so offended after the service. He said, Joey, you called me a sinner. Hey, you called me a sinner. I said, well, you know. Because it's easy to say we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But if I say, you know, we're sinners, you say that to a person who's under the reign of sin, watch the reaction that you're going to get 99% of the time. The people are not cool with that. Not cool with that. They'll, they'll push back for sure because they think their self-perception is, I'm okay, not perfect, I'm not there, I'm not a sinner, I'm somewhere in the middle. And I'm gonna make that cutoff line. I'm gonna I'm gonna be okay as long as I try harder, do better. You know, we were at the abortion clinic yesterday, as Aaron mentioned. I'll tell you what, those escorts there, especially the young ones, you think they think that they're bad people, you think that they're sinners? No, 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 no. In their eyes, those escorts, they believe that they're helping. It's sincerely. You know, and college kids and they believe that they're there to help these unfortunate women obtain an abortion because of their circumstance and, and we show sympathy and we show love. They, if you said you're a sinner, they're going to be what? I'm helping these women. I'm, I'm helping them get on with their lives, not make a, you know, huge mistake and, and get into this. So they sincerely believe that when you're under the reign of sin, you have a way of twisting things around in that way, don't you? So, so, you know, they think they're helpful and they think they're very caring that, that they're doing, that they're protecting you from those nasty, crazy wackos across the street saying don't do this, right? Oh, that's, 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 that, the, forget the reality of them aiding and abetting the horrors that are taking place inside that clinic. Right? We have a self-perception that we're decent people. That's number one. Number two, you know you're under the reign of sin when the entire concept of sin is kind of murky at best for you. So what do people say? Before you were Christian, see, before, before you died to sin, what did you say about sin in your life? Did you call it sin all the time? No, what do we call them? I made a mistake, man, and that's so you know, in vogue today. Even, people aren't even admitting mistakes or sin in any sh- way, shape, or form necessarily. But when they do, it's hey, man, we all have flaws. I'm flawed in that area, perhaps, but you know, uh, that's that's yeah, I I I'm, I have, maybe have some bad habits. I got an addiction over here. I made some bad decisions that have, you know, that have hurt, but we don't call sin sin. All we need is some self help to get through that, some therapy, a second, third, and fourth chance. Just give me another chance and I'll, and I'll be okay. And, and we're so well versed. If you're under the reign of sin, with that whole concept of sin that's murky, we're so well-versed in justifying, rationalizing, minimizing, normalizing, and accepting that which the Bible calls sin, aren't we? We're just so good at that. We justify it. Well, the reason I did that is because my spouse is a terrible person, and this person over here gives me love. We justify our sin, that which the Bible calls sin, don't we? We minimize it. Ah, it's not that big a deal. All I did was take that from work. I just, nobody's even going to miss it. So we love to minimize our sin. And we really believe it when we're under the reign of sin. You minimize it, right? That's, that's what you do. You, you, you justify, you, you rationalize it, and then you normalize it. Hey, man, everybody's doing it. What's the big deal if I do that? Who cares if I watch this? What's a business of yours, All right? We normalize it. Everybody's doing this. And then we accept it. That what the Bible calls sin. There's nothing to repent of. How, how when you were before you were a Christian, how, how often did you really truly repent? You might have got sorry that you got busted. You might have felt bad about something. <laughs> Rats and you know, you know, maybe a God forgive me type thing, but you never repented of your sin, did you? You didn't. You didn't see that as something that was even appropriate. You may have regret, may have regrets about what you did. But you're not going to call out on God upon God. That's what Paul's talking about here. That's what he's saying. You've died to sin if you're a Christian man. That's not who you are anymore. And the third thing, you're under the reign of sin when you have a fluid sense of morality, man. If you have a fluid sense of morality, if morality is relativistic, if it's up for grabs, if it changes. Oh, man, then you know, you don't, They, you know, you're not going to acknowledge it, but you're under the reign of sin, right? You may have a strong moral conviction or convictions. I know a lot of unbelievers that have strong moral convictions for sure, a, a sense of right and wrong, a code of ethics, traditional values, you know, that we hold to. But if you have no final ultimate authority or standard, when questions come up about what you so have taken for granted is right, wrong, good and bad, whatever, and when you're challenged on that, and when you're pressed on that, if you don't have that ultimate standard, if you don't have that foundation that comes from the Lord only in His law, guess what you're going to do eventually? You will capitulate. You will. Either tacitly or you'll fully embrace. There's no doubt about it. That's the way. Because you don't really have, you have your convictions, but if, you don't, if you're not in the Lord, that's going to change, man. That's going to change over time. Think about it. Five years ago, just think in general, how many people would have accepted the transgender movement for where it's at today and where it's at right now? Five years ago, how many people would have been on board with that? Morally, no, that's wrong. It's not right. Today, well, you know, that's, we're understanding more about, you know, where they're at and they're trying to find identity and who the, you know, who they're come to be. Who are we? Let's, let's call them by their pronoun names. Let's accept the, everything that they accept about themselves and, right? Right? That's the reign of sin because now your, your morality is going to shift. 10 years ago, where were people on gay marriage? Right? How, how that has changed. 20 years ago, if you want to go that far back, where were people on homosexuality? No way. No way. Now it's like, of course. Are you kidding me? That's even people who would be conservative, that's their life. As long as they're not bothering me. Or if they really love each other, what are you gonna do? Right? I don't agree with it, but that's the reign of sin, man. That's what that is. Absolutely. Thirty years ago, premarital sex. No way. Now? That's not even a category anymore. That's not even a thing. It's just kind of accept- You have hookups where you could like hook up like get on the internet in the morning and by the afternoon you could be in that, in that realm. So, so see how far that's changed. Under the, uh, under the, under the reign of sin, we're not going to have a firm morality. It's going to be a fluid sense. It's going to change. You could add divorce in there, crime, whatever category you want. Because if you don't have that, you change. The bottom line is this. Under the reign of sin, when sin reigns, you will serve it. It doesn't matter if you're the most respected person in the community or the most hated person in that community. It doesn't matter if you're the wealthiest person in the world or if you're a homeless person without one penny. It doesn't matter if you're the nicest, sweetest person there could ever be or the meanest, nastiest man you've ever met in your life. It doesn't matter. A liar is going to lie. A thief is going to steal. An adulterer is going to cheat. A greedy person is never going to have enough. A gossip is going to talk. And a murderer is going to kill. You get that? You understand that? It doesn't matter. Everywhere where society you come from, what culture you were born into, what status you have in life, that is the bottom line. Why? Because you're under the reign of sin. And Paul is saying here, what he's teaching here, once you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you're no longer under that reign of sin. Amen? Amen? You've been separate. It's no longer the governing power over you. That's why when you're in Christ Jesus, people still under the power, people still under the reign of sin don't get you at all. They don't. They don't see. They'll say to you, what happened to you? You know, you've, you've gone too far. You're going nuts. You're, you know, you've, you've gotten religious on me. You know, you've gotten religion. No, you got the Holy Spirit who transformed your life. You're no longer who you were and sin no longer reigns in your life. That's what Paul is saying here. He's going to go on to illustrate that. Amen and praise God. You need to stand on that as a Christian. Right? All these people all the time. Oh, I remember, you were always still so nice, Joey, when you were young, you were a good kid. I wasn't a good kid, I know what I was. But I see that as a lot, as as a Christian, right? Paul says, shall we continue sin? That's absurd, if you're truly in him. You wouldn't even think that way, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? As a Christian, if you're alive in Jesus Christ, all those things change what is your self-perception what do you think about yourself now if you're a christian this morning if you're not under the reign of sin this morning what's your self-perception you don't really it's kind of rhetorical i'm going to answer it (laughs) in a minute but you see in the world They want that self-perception to be, oh, you're a wonderful person, you're a good person, you're a nice person, you just might need a little work over here and over there. No, if you're a Christian this morning, you know exactly what you are because your eyes are open. You know that you're an undeserving sinner who has been saved by grace. You know that there is nothing good in me. You understand? Praise God for that. You know the moment that you have an opportunity to sin apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, you're going to go into that sin, and you're going to you're going to commit that sin. Now, we don't loathe ourselves. We don't, oh, I hate myself. No, we don't loathe ourselves, but we know ourselves, and we know how deceitful our heart is. We have a biblical anthropology now. That means you're not under the reign of sin anymore. You're dead to sin and alive in Christ. That shows that in a very practical way. So what's your self-perception? You still think you're a pretty good person, decent person, nice person? Try to please everybody in that, in that way? No. I know that apart from Christ, I'm nothing but a loser, sinner, who's dead in my sin and trespasses and deserves his wrath. But by the grace of God, he's saved me from that. So now I may serve you truly. Now I may love you. Now I may do the things that build you up and honor and glorify God. Capiche? That's it. That's, what, that's what's going on here. You are dead to sin. This is how you know. See how practical it is, see how simple it is. When it comes to sin, we see it very clearly in the light of the law. Okay, God's law teaches this. That's right. This is sin. I transgress that. That's how we define sin. In Christ, if you're in Christ, then you see sin for what it is. No more games, no more playing around, no more rationalizing, no more minimizing. No more compromising with it. You know, because you're not dead, you're alive in Christ. You've died to your sin, which means you see it for what it is. If you're alive in Christ, you see sin for what it is, and you died to that. Right? We see it very clearly. We don't accept it as normal practice, as if we don't practice it as if it has no consequence. When we sin, we repent of that. We turn to the Lord. We confess it. There's contrition. We own it. We turn away from it. We run to Christ with the intention of committing that sin no more. All right? The deceitfulness we see, the devastation that it causes, and ultimately whom we are sinning against. When you're not under the reign of that sin, you see it for what it truly is and bring it before the Lord. No longer. Do we not know? And then finally, with morality, um, we have an absolute standard, an unchanging standard of righteousness. So it doesn't matter whatever goes on in this world. However, the world changes. If ninety-nine point nine percent of the people say that this is right and it's contrary to God's word, what do we say? Let God be true in every man. A, amen. That's where we stand. That's the morality. That's the line in the sand. We don't go one way or the other. There's no, you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. You can't be hot and cold at the same time. You know, like this is the truth. There's no truth and lie that, that go together. We understand that. There's an absolute morality. There's an absolute standard, an unchanging standard that comes from an unchanging, all holy, omnipotent, omniscient God. That is the standard that is the that is the base of morality that is what's right and what's wrong so murder is always murder and we can tell you why that's another thing if you're not truly converted you might have strong convictions but when it comes down to the why question why is it wrong why 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 if it doesn't come back because god says then you're then you have no foundation to stand on we could say it's wrong because God calls it wrong, because we are image bearers of God, because there's inherent value in image bearers of God. That's why we preserve life. That's why we keep life. And we're not swayed by cultural consensus on things like abortion. Well, you know, that's some situations are tough. No, 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 no. Murder is murder. We know that. We're not swayed on euthanasia. That's a big deal right now. It's something we're going to have to deal with because it's coming on strong. Already to the north of us in Canada, euthanasia is huge. And it sounds so compassionate. And it sounds so loving. And it sounds so caring. You know, they're, they're at the end of life. Why let them suffer this way? Why keep them there? Why do that for them? Why continue to do that when they could just be put out of their misery and their pain? It's a very serious ethical question that's coming up. But we who love life have an answer for that in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we persevere. The Lord will take him when he does. Now, there's other questions we can talk about. But you know what happens with that? The door opens up. Well, this person only has... Two weeks to live, so okay. Um, but over here now we have in, in Canada, well, this person has loneliness and they're depressed, and there's really nothing too much wrong with them physically, but they just don't want to live anymore. So let's that's where it's at right now, or at least heading there in Canada. And I'm not joking. But this is that's that slippery slope that you get on when you take God out of it. But we know that murder is murder. The intentional killing of a human being is murder. Okay, And we say, why? Because we're alive in Jesus Christ. If we're alive in Christ, it means we're dead to sin. It means no longer that sin reigns in your life. It doesn't. You say no to it. It has no mastery over us. <sighs> Which means... Getting back to the original idea of like letting sin go in our lives, it means that we would never presume on God's grace, right? You're not going to presume on his grace as, been given, as we've been given some kind of divine permission to go on sinning with impunity. Just the opposite. The freedom that we have in Christ and freedom and grace is that freedom to obey him. Our freedom to love him. Our freedom to know him in a deeper way. Our freedom to say, I belong to Jesus Christ and I will not move. The freedom to say, I will not compromise. The freedom to say, I will not give in to this sin. To flee from temptation and to trust in Jesus Christ. That's what it means. That's what he's saying here. Not that grace abounds and we could do this. That's silly. That's absurd. It's because he loves me and and positionally I am sin is not a master over me i am seated with him in the heavenlies i have the power of the holy spirit i have the wisdom my eyes are open my ears are unstuffed my heart has been changed my mind knows and when i sin i'm doing that willfully with volition hope and repentance on that and we'll talk about sanctification later on but here's the idea that sin is not your master you've been set free does not reign in your life, you could say no.